بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى سيدنا محمد. The fourth aspect of faith. So so far we have done iman in Allah subhanahu wa taala, iman in all of the messengers, and iman in all the angels. The fourth thing is to have iman in the Quran al-Karim and all the books which were revealed before it. Allah subhanahu wa taala says in the Quran, "O you who believe, have faith in Allah and His Messenger and the book which He revealed to His Messenger, and the book which was revealed beforehand." Iman in the books. Obviously, everybody knows that we have iman in the Quran al-Karim. The three other major revelations that were revealed were the Zabur, in English known as the Psalms to Sayyidina Dawud alayhi salam, the Torah, called the same thing in English to Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, and the Injil, which is the Bible, but well, rather the Injil that was revealed to Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. Now, what value does it have for us to have iman in these books when actually the Quran al-Karim tells us that the books as we have them in the present state, they have been changed, they're corrupted. The reason why we say we have iman in them is it's all linked back to our iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a being who has continually sent revelation and scripture to humanity. And we believe and have absolute iman that He has been doing so and he sent revelation to guide humanity as part of our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as Al-Hadi, the giver of Hidayah. Sometimes people wonder that why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed these other books to be corrupted? Because you would think and your uncle would make you think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should protect all his books like you would protect everything of yours. Why is it that the Quran al-Karim is the only one that is protected? One reason that is given, well, this was to single out a particular shan for the Quran, right? That the Qur'an al-Karim was destined to become the only book that would remain intact, the only book that was the ultimate divine word, and therefore the Injil, the Torah, the Zabur are bound to be corrupted. Second answer the ulama give is that there's this book, there's this place called the Loh al-Mahfuz, which is the eternal tablet. And on that eternal tablet there's one scripture that is written and that is the Qur'an al-Karim. The other scriptures, the Injil and the Torah and the Zabur are not part of the Lohul Mahfuz. And therefore, because they're not, Mahfuz means preserved, right? So because they're not on that eternally preserved tablet, and Allah knows best what that is, but that is something, some type of place where Allah Subhanahu has chosen to bestow His final word. These books weren't there, therefore they were corruptible by human beings. Another reason was that the Qur'an al-Karim, a third reason that the Qur'an al-Karim is a miracle. It's actually the biggest mu'jizah that Allah subhanahu wa gave the Prophet more so than splitting the moon and other things that are mentioned in the seerah. What is the mu'jizah in it? The mu'jizah is its Arabic language, its inability, which is its incomparability, its your inability to bring the likeness of a surah or a verse, etc. of it and its incorruptibility and its hifazah by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Another reason is that this ultimate sin, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions over and over in the Qur'an, that the early Jews and the Christians used to change their scripture, bithaman and qalil, for a small price, for a paltry sum, or for some gain in the dunya, or for some gain in political power, right? And that is something that the previous ummahs did, they disparaged their own scripture. So not only is it the shan of the Qur'an, it's the shan of this ummah. That nobody in this ummah or the ulama of this ummah would never fathom to change the text of the Qur'an al-Kareem for a paltry sum or for a small price. Our iman in the books, what does it mean for us today? 
Does it mean that every single thing in the Bible is wrong? Well, obviously, rationally speaking, it's difficult to make the argument that 100% of it is corrupted. But everything that is of any value, any worth, that was in the other scriptures has been contained and brought in the Qur'an al-Karim. So once you have the Qur'an al-Karim, you become mustaghni, you become uh, independent. You no longer need whatever kernels of truth may even be there in the current Old Testament, New Testament, Torah, and whatever Psalms that they claim to have. If you were to study them, right, and there are very, very few Muslims who actually study, there are a whole lot of non-Muslims who study the Qur'an al-Karim, but there are very few Muslims who study their texts. And when I was in college uh, studying Islamic studies, the number of Jews who used to study Islamic studies was phenomenal. And you would not find a single Muslim who ever majored in Judaic studies or Jewish studies. And when I took Arabic, I was 99% of the people were non-Muslim. And you go into Hebrew class, 99% of the people were Jewish. But that's a field that the Muslims should have. I mean, it's maybe not the ultimate topmost thing in our priority, but amongst the ulum that we should have for the sake of da'wah, for the sake of ilm, for the sake of taqabul al-adiyan, compared to religion, people should do that, right? And people would study, and if a person was to study them, you would find that there are some similarities. There are some commonalities, right? But nonetheless, anything that is common or similar, we will still take it from the Kamil Qur'an al-Karim. One thing that should be mentioned is that there's a certain thing in the Hadith literature called Israeliyat. Israeliyat are, there were some Sahaba who prior to accepting Islam, they were either Christian or Jewish. Or there were some Sahaba who had heard certain things from the Christians and Jews of their time. So when the Prophet would mention something, particularly stories of the early Prophets, something about Sayyidina Musa Islam, something about Sayyidina Isa Islam. So they had heard some information and sometimes they would mention that, they would share that, and some books of tafsir have written it down. The majority of Mufassirun feel that you should take these reports with a healthy grain of salt, and basically they're just like history books. And there's no real need to have any proper aqidah in them, they're not part of your faith, they're not part of your iman, they may or may not be correct, such as a historical fact is, what is the name of Sayyidina Nuh Islam's son? It's a very famous story, it's mentioned in the Qur'an al that he gave his son Dawah, the son refused, and the son was drowned in the flood. Now what was the name of the son? You can find the name of the son of the Israeliyat. And sometimes some Mufassir will mention that the name of the son is X. So we will say that's a possibility. Right? Not even a probability, that's a possibility. It's a mere historical fact from which no tentative belief, nor no legal ruling, no hukm shari will be derived. But sometimes people put in there to add the details of the story. Salawat of these books, not much of an issue for you here in Pakistan, but if you're in America, you know, sometimes you will come across a Bible on campus or in the school. Although technically speaking, there is no verse from the Quran or hadith from the Sunnah that will tell you that you should do adab of those books, but because of the possibility that there is going to be something in them that is a genuine message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And out of respect, Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an that do not mock others' religion lest they mock yours. So there's nothing wrong with having adab towards the Bible, towards the Torah, to view it as a text that is possibly religious, has some things in it that are still correct, or at least a text that is respected by people because Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala mentions this category of people in the Qur'an al-Kareem called the Ahl Kitab. Right? And He singles them out from the, all the rest of humanity. Right? The, the Qur'an al-Kareem gives some special, otherwise the rest of kuffar, mushrikeen, munafikeen, no other category gets any special consideration. 
right? The Ahl Kitab get some special consideration. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them this special consideration, then it befits us also then that we should give them some special consideration. From the Ahl Kitab, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran that the Christians, the Nasara, and I always prefer, it's a personal thing, but that people in Urdu should not call Christians Isai. We are the inheritors of Sayyidina Isa If you want to call the Christians something in Arabic or Urdu, you should call them Nasara. Right? It's like you should not call the Qadianis Amadi. You should call them Qadiani or Mirzai. Right? We're Amadi. Allah Ta'ala says, وَإِسْمُهُ Ahmad That the name of the Prophet is Ahmad. Right? Allah Subhanahu Taala says in the Quran that the Christians are generally softer. And you will find the Jews to be more harsh. But again, this is not an absolute rule. There certainly you can find in this day and age and certain political figures in the world, you can find extremely strict or harsh or extremely spiteful towards Islam Christians. And it's possible to find a tolerant and open-minded Jews. So it's not a kind of kulli, it's not a universal rule. Other issues, marrying the Ahlul Kitab and eating the meat of the Ahlul Kitab. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an al-Kareem that a Muslim man can marry a kitabi woman, a woman from the Ahl kitab There's a difference of scholars on this, difference of opinion. One opinion is that this refers to somebody who is on the original religion of the Ahl kitab like a true monotheist who believes in the original teachings of Christianity as brought by Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, not a trinity-believing Christian woman who believes Isa alayhi salam is the son of Allah or is divine incarnate. The reason for that is that again, as I mentioned to you a few days ago, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has used the word kuffar for the Ahl al-Kitab. A second group of scholars took the position that, well, to be honest, the vast majority of Christians, even at the time of the Prophet did believe that Isa salam was the son of Allah. And that's why the Qur'an al-Kareem addresses them in the first instance, that why do you say he is the son of Allah? So that means that that belief had crept in at that time. It's not like it's something that came afterwards. And so if the ruling at that time was permissible to marry the Ahl Kitab, then the vast majority of Ahl Kitab were on the issue of Trinity. This is an issue that comes up with Pakistanis who move to America. A lot of them like to, you know, get married to foreigners. So all my own personal preferences for that position that you cannot marry an Ahl Kitab woman. But either way, one way to get around this, and something I've suggested to some of you, is that one thing in Islam is the permissible. What is permissible and what is not. And there's another thing that what is preferable and what is not. When there's an ikhtilaf in what is preferable, you shouldn't get into disputation and argumentation about it. Hafiz ibn Qayyum al-Jazeera, rahimahullah, and Zad al-Ma'at, says that you should not fight in the ikhtilaf and istihbab. One person, one view says this is preferable, the other says this is preferable. At the best you can state your preference and the reasons for why you think that is preferable. So certainly we would think that marriage is one of the most sacred relationships. It's an eternal bond and it has an incredible impact on your own spirituality as well as the deen and the spirituality of your children. So it would make extreme sense to marry not just a Muslim, but a pious Muslim or religious, and this is actually your favorite topic, I'm squeezing it in here on 77 branches of faith. But as young men, you should really make that niyat. And since this is a month of dua, you should make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant you a pious, righteous, supportive, and beautiful, no problem, wife. Right? If you have a pious wife, 
then you're 90% saved. You are 90% saved. 10% you can still falter due to your nafs and shaitan. And the Prophet said that there are three things that he especially loved in this world. One was itr, fragrance. The second was salah. And the three things that were the coolness of his eyes. And the third thing was a pious wife. Right? So all of us should have this niyyah that we want to have a wife who is the most pious, the most muttaki, the most tahira, zakira, shakira, sabira, abida, alima, arifa, everything, all the Qur'an al-Kareem ayat that you can think of. And this is linked to iman because the Prophet said in nikah nisful iman. That nikah is half of iman or some people interpret that nikah is the takmil of our iman. It might be coming, I can't remember right now, but if it comes we'll deal with it more, otherwise we brought it up. In here, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to have iman in all of the previous books that He has revealed. Those whose names that we know, such as the Injil, Zabur and Torah. And also we have iman in any and all scriptures that He revealed as He knows them to be. As is our belief in Him. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us in this month of the Qur'an to have kamal iman in the Qur'an. And to base our amal and our life on the Qur'an al-Kareem. Wa akhirat da'wana and alhamdulillah.